Here's something for you to ponder. You can walk with no legs, but you can't walk with no arms. Find out more about what that means on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first. Those things are your foundation after all. And uh, we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the straight out lies you've been told about what it takes to walk or run or hike or dance or play or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do and to do that enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. And did I mention enjoyably? It's a trick question. I know I did. I know what I said. I've said this a million times. Uh, Anyway, we call this the Movement Movement Podcast because we're creating a movement about natural movement, helping people rediscover that letting your body do what it's designed to do is the better, obvious, healthy choice the way we currently think of natural food. I'm Stephen Sashin from zeroshoes.com, your host of the podcast. And by the way, that movement part of the natural movement part, that just involves you. There's nothing special. Just go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com and you'll find all the different ways you can interact with the podcast, all the places you can find it, how you can find us on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and wherever else. The gist is um, share, let your friends know what we're up to. If you think this is a message worth spreading, Uh, like, and subscribe and give a comment and a thumbs up and hit the bell icon on YouTube. I mean, look, you know what to do. If you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let us jump in. Uh, Beth Lewis, a pleasure having you here. Would you tell people who the hell you are and what you do? Oh, who the heck am I? Uh, So my name is Beth. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so flattered and honored to be here. Um, I am a retired professional dancer, um, as well as a movement specialist slash movement coach. So I work with a variety of humans from all different ages, teaching them how to have efficient, coordinated, um, you know, just functioning movement, just trying to be comfortable and to quote one of my teachers, make the movement as cheap as possible with as, as little cost as possible. You know, two things. One, I love that. I've been reading uh, Dan Lieberman's latest book called, I think it's called Exercised. Exercised. I I'm, love I'm har- him. I'm horrible with titles. So that's why I had to say, I think. Yeah, that was a great book. Actually. And the beginning of the book is just talking about how human beings Uh, like all animals are basically designed to use as little energy as possible to basically get to the point where we can reproduce. And we think of it very often the other way around. So, so I love that quote, but let's back up to one of the first things you said is retired professional dancer. Because when most people think professional dancer, they're imagining people doing ballet and they're on point and you were in a whole different dance world. I was in a whole different dance world. Um, I worked for a company called Palabolas Dance Theater, uh, founded in the early 1970s by a bunch of scientists. And the movement was based on um, a technique called weight sharing. So basically based on physics. So if someone's pulling out, you have to have equal pressure out and pushing in equal pressure in to make shapes out of human bodies that would be absolutely impossible without a partner. So a lot of strength involved and a lot of trust involved. Well, and and I think you were underplaying this. So I, I've been a Palabolas fan, not for the 50 years that they've been around, but for 47 of those years. And back in my days as a soon-to-be all-American gymnast, we used to go watch Palabolas shows, which were flat out amazing. I mean, even if you don't like dance, if you think you don't like dance, you will still love Palabolas and uh, go find them. Um, we'll spell it in the show notes, but we used to go watch yeah. the shows and then go back and try to replicate some of the stuff that we had just seen <laughs> nine times out of 10. Could not, How did that go? Not well at all. And I only recently found out why from uh, talking to someone who still works with the company, which she explained it as, you know, we all got together and then we just experimented and we found things that we could all do because of our unique, everything, strength, body size, weight. I mean, yeah. all these things. Um, and that uh, was one of the cool things about the company. It was all based on improvisation. So you, we used to always say you showy, you dewy, <laughs> because if you did it, it wasn't a guarantee that your other, you know, company member could do it. So you had to be right. really careful about what you would show because you'd be holding some pretty weird positions for hours on end. Well, and you and I talked about this before. One of my earliest memories uh, from one of the shows, I had to confirm to see if it was actually true or a memory that wasn't really a memory uh, that I don't know where it came from out of my head, which was someone who walked out on stage, turned like perpendicular to the audience, just lifted one of his legs straight. So it's parallel to the ground and just stood there like that. And for 10 seconds, we're all watching on. All right, I wonder what's going to happen next. And at the 30 second mark, we're going, all right, this is kind of 
kind of weird. And then about the one minute mark, you're going, okay, this is insane that he's able to do this. And like at the five minute mark, people are jumping out of their chairs, freaking out. And I confirmed that was an actual bit that some, one of the guys could just do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was the transition from dance to what you're doing now? Yeah. So when I first graduated from, uh, I went to the University of Georgia, graduated with the BFA in dance. And I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do with that? Uh, I want to dance, but getting a dance job is not the easiest task. So I kind of fell into group fitness and personal training. My first job was at a Gold's Gym in Cartersville, Georgia. I learned a lot in that gym, actually. Uh, a lot about dealing with people, um, for sure. And, you know, I I got my dance job. I was living in Atlanta. I moved to New York. I came off the road and I just took a deep dive into training. I did a ton of continuing education from performance training with a company called Exos. Um, I also did bodybuilding and powerlifting. I dabbled in some Olympic lifting and it was basically, they were all just projects because I wanted to learn more about it. I really wasn't so interested in Olympic lifting, but I was like, look, I'm going to do a 12 week program. I'm going to do a little competition and I'm going to see what happens because I wanted to experience it. I learned that I do not like Olympic lifting. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like you said with Pilates, not everyone's built to do it. <laughs> I am not quick. I don't get tired, but I'm not quick. Yeah, um, those go on just, opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's just a, it's a yeah. it's a different muscle fiber. It's a different energy yeah. system. I was just talking earlier with someone about it. I just don't have that CNS drive. I you know neural fatigue is a thing for me. And I'm the other way around. It's like I can just you know put out the force. But the endurance thing, uh, In your I, not my <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then eventually I started um, getting more into the clinical side of things. I was very interested in working with physical therapists. I worked in a couple of different clinics, learned a lot there. So that's kind of where my continuing education shifted. So I started doing um, a lot of functional range conditioning. Uh, it was a system, functional range systems was created by Andre, Dr. Andrea Spina. Um, and then also a lot of postural restoration, which was created by Ron Haruska, who that quote that I told you, uh, you can't walk without your arms. He says that. Well, you just gave out my biggest secret. I, people thought that I made that up. And now you told them that. I, <laughs> well, I wanted people to think I made it up, but I'm not. <laughs> you can't take credit when you're not that cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just, you know, I've still worked with group fitness. I love group fitness. Um, I teach a variety of online Zoom classes now. And then I'm also affiliated with a rowing studio called City Row. Uh, they have an online platform as well and a ton of studios all over the US. So it's my fitness has been all over the place, but I love it because it's made me pretty well-rounded. Um, and I've kind of taken from different uh, modalities and systems to kind of create things that work for people in certain situations. Cause not, not one system works. There they are. That's Blondie is Georgie. And this is Hank. Hi, He's Hank. my baby. Oh. <laughs> um, and then I don't know where Gus is anyway. Um, but not one system works for everyone all of the right. time. So it's really important to be able to intermix between well, more. I mean, you know, I got to be, I'll be totally candid about this. When people approach me about being on the podcast and all they're doing is teaching something they learn from what, from an other person, I don't typically care to have them on, but you have right. synthesized things and you're doing your own thing in a way that, um, you know, in our previous conversation, that's what was interesting. We're going to dive into that, but let's start. Why don't we start with that opening quote of you can walk without legs, but not without your arms. Right. So I've always had a fascination with shoulder blades, the scapulae, if you will. I always thought of them from just a control standpoint and, you know, overhead reaching and loading, you know, pushing and pulling. And after working with postural restoration, it, there's so much more than that. They're like rudders for your body. They help control your vertical axis, which is your spine. They also help you maintain rhythm when you're moving without them you wouldn't be able to locomote forward because they give you that propulsion forward and 
they also help you sense the ground, which, you know, when you're talking about feet, that's very important. When you reach back with one of your shoulder blades, you're getting ab wall compression on the opposite side, which is helping you get pressure from the ground up. That makes you more efficient at walking. Right. And it also just makes you keeps that nice rotational action happening, which helps you utilize the real estate of your feet, which is so important because the feet are what you walk with, no pun intended, but they have the ground contact, but these, these shoulder blades are what are actually moving you through space and assisting that sense of grounding. That's why some people, I want to highlight this or emphasize this because when we say you can't walk without your arms, we're not talking about whether you actually have arms or not. We're talking about this happening with shoulders and shoulder blades. There's an interesting um, version of this. There's a sprinting coach that I know who got into a big argument about uh, what the proper arm motion is. And he said, well, why don't we take a look at the Paralympians? And there's a guy who just ran like a half a second slower than the world championship able-bodied runner, but this guy has no arms. And so if it was about what your arms are doing to make you run faster, this guy just proved that ain't it. But there is still this rotational thing happening. And there's no denying that, you know, arms can be a something, but it's, it's always interesting to me how people, I don't want to put this, they mythologize one thing or another because they think, Hey, that's their way of, you know, putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is who I am. Exactly. And, and also because, you know, we want a simple answer to so many things. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, rib cages and shoulder blades are so important. And without one, it makes it really hard to find the other. And the, the brain is all about references and pressure. And that's what really helps you do that coordinated with your breath, obviously. So, moving to the thing that you, that you alluded to then. So talk about that connection, that relationship between shoulder blades and feet. Right. So um, I'm in my Zoom setup so I can actually move around a little bit. Oh, nice. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you take a step, the opposite arm should, your shoulder blade should pull back in the scapular retraction and the opposite arm should reach forward. Obviously, I'm being very dramatic about this. It's not right. going to happen that So from the front side, if you watch my rib cage, as I pull back, do you see how I'm getting that loading idea? Yep. That creates pressure, which allows me to get grounding from the heel. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then I, yeah. So I'm being very dramatic about it, but the arms really help your rib cage rotate appropriately so you can feel a sense of grounding up. Waiting. If you don't move your arms. Right. And yeah, so the shoulder blades don't reach forward and they're always kind of squeezing back. They right. kind of extension pattern. It throws our femurs into external rotation. We tend to waddle. I'm exaggerating, obviously, waddle through space. So it's not giving us that access to all of that foot real estate. Right. The thing that I'm I'm seeing when you do that, um, I just want to talk about sort of the loading pattern. Because when you're making that motion, when you have that, it's a subtle motion, obviously, we're exaggerating for the sake of example. But when you have that torso torsioning, the whole idea of getting that weight onto your foot to apply force into the ground, this applies whether you're walking or running. I mean, this is, there's an idea in running uh, that what makes one person faster than the other is mass specific force, how much force you're putting in the ground at the right angle based on how much you weigh. And if you're not getting fully over that foot, you can't, you're not applying all the mass that you have into the ground in that right way. Right. Yeah. And you're not, you're not able to access all of that foot. So you could push yourself through space. Right. You're not getting one thing is taking the brunt as opposed to that rocker idea, which is got what it, you want. It. And, you know, the other point you made, if you're not using your arms, if you're not getting that torsional rotation, how that's going to affect your glutes, which will then rotate your hips or rotate your femurs. Yeah. Your femurs rotate out. Cause you're, you know, we have, the brain has two priorities, right? Keep breathing no matter what, it's going to breathe and don't fall down. So we have, I, a whole, I would argue there are a couple of others, but okay, I'll, I'll go with you on this one. Those are the two main ones. Eh, I'm not so sure, but okay. <laughs> you have, you have this set of anti-gravity muscles that kind of kick in right. to keep you from falling on your face. So shoulder blade squeezing back those scapular retractors, that, that muscle stuff back there, those are anti-gravity. 
yeah, that the spinal extensors are anti-gravity, that actually whenever that anti-gravity stuff kicks in, because that is such a high stress, you know, your brain thinking you fall down is very stressful. Right. So when those muscles kick in, all most of your variability is limited. So midline variability. So when you're running, mind you, I haven't run in a very long time, but I'll just take it back to walking. Okay. When you're walking, your feet should be doing the work here. Yep. The midline should be pretty easy. Those anti-gravity muscles are kicking in. You don't have that ability for this stuff to move and rotate. So you don't really have the space for anything to go wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've actually seen, you know, clinically, and also I've read a couple of papers on this about, you know, lower back discomfort and, and lots of extension actually starts to, to limit the proprioception ability in your feet. Cause this has such a high cost. Your brain's like, mm, these guys got me. I don't got to worry about the feet anymore. Well, you know, there's another thing that you were doing when you were walking that I find interesting and I'll set it up this way. People get into arguments about the, about whether you should land on your heel when you walk. And they, and I go, you're missing the point about that. First of all, it's not about what touches the ground first. It's about how you're loading and what you're using in your foot. And when you were walking while your heel was touching the ground first, though, you were getting your foot in a position where it's underneath you and you were loading the foot using the arch and kind of building the strength to begin with before you took off. That was a whole different game. Yeah. Than most people think. So if there's a book I can recommend, it's real nerdy. And, and you're about to. Let's see you see it. me? Uh, it's real nerdy. Human oh, locomotion. I love that book. <laughs> I love this book. And, you know, and for wait, people like. Wait, wait, for people who aren't watching, um, give it the title and the author. Uh, Human Locomotion, Dr. Thomas Mashad. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I will say, because it can get quite heady, he has a lot of uh, like videos on YouTube. Yep. They're easy to follow, they're great. Yeah. It's people also, they talk about um, the heel pad, the pad in the heel and they go, well, you know, that's made for fill in the blank. You know, it's not made to protect you from slamming your heel to the ground. It's basically just, you know, to let you roll over. It's there's so much right. misunderstanding I mean, about this. There's some things that have to happen up top to dampen force. So when you right. land on your heel, your femur has to pull back. Mm. That helps dampen force. If it doesn't pull back, i.e. Yeah you're not able to dampen that force. But if you're able to, when you reach this opposite, this side of your pelvis has to pull back. That's a force dampener. Yep. Well, but you just also showed, wait, hold on. I'm going to make you stand up. I'm, I'm going to make you play uh, dancing. Monkey on this. <laughs> That's okay. I do this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like how I just said dancing monkey. And as you walked back, you looked monkey. Yep. That's how I live. <laughs> Could not help it. But what you were also showing is what many people do is they'll kick their foot out in front of them and kind of use that front leg, almost like a, like a, you know, pogoing over it, where if you just, if you just landed like that with your heel down, you also can't get any of that force dampening because you're sitting there with a straight leg. There's exactly. Nothing else yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But this pullback yep. is vital for dampening force. But if you're like this, you can't go. Yeah. you got no place to go. Well, wait, stay there. I'm going to hit you with another one. Many people though, because what you're showing is the shoulder blades pulled back almost sort of locked, but many people have the opposite where their shoulders are caved forward. So can you it's, talk about yeah. that? So yes, that's actually a respiratory strategy of compression. So we're going to move along to my second favorite <laughs> topic. <laughs> okay. This again, is why I'm, again, why for, I'm for the record, I completely disagree with Beth's idea about what's first and second most important, but I'm not going to tell you what I think is true. <laughs> I know. This is why I'm single. <laughs> Calculate and rib cages. That's my whole life. <laughs> so rib cages, yeah. when you inhale, are made to expand three-dimensionally. Right. So our respiratory strategies impact our stabilization strategies and our movement variability. Okay. Okay. So if you, are, if you aren't able to expand three dimensionally, so yeah. front, side, and back, 
you start to compress in certain areas and not be able to compress in others. So movement has to be, and I always think in terms of dance, movement, even walking has to be this lovely uh, synchronized motion of tension and release. Something has to tense and something has to release. If you're too released, it's not gonna work. If everything's locked up, you can only do one thing. So I see this a lot in runners. Caved in thing, yeah. Caved in. And a lot of people think it's because they're always doing this. Right. It, this, is a, this is a respiration strategy. They're always bracing down. So they're never getting air in the apical space. What do you think? I mean, it's a strategy for what? What's it either trying to protect or accomplish? That's unknown. I mean, I think about it because, you know, I was an all-American gymnast way back when, and the most important strength you can have as a gymnast is sort of, you know, lifting forward that hollow back um, kind of compressed chest thing. Cause there's a, that's so gymnastics that's so compressed. Yeah. 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 I mean, I exactly. spent a good 30 years of my life trying to, and still to this day, still, you know, opening that up in a relaxed way. So that was right. a deliberate thing uh, that right. got developed from, you know, the requirements of the sport. Right. I mean, I think it is important. And a lot of things get, are sports specific, right? You develop yeah. patterns based on what you repeat all the time. Yeah. But I mean, think about what that does. If your apical space is, is super tight, you're yeah. not going back there. Yeah. Well, interestingly, many gymnasts, and I think this is misdiagnosed, and, and I had the same issue, had shoulder problems. And most of the time, we think that the shoulder problem is just because of what we're doing to our shoulders rather than what you just described, which I'd never thought of till right now, is if that chest is compressed, you don't get the mobility to begin with. So you're putting your shoulders exactly. in a bad position. And then uh, that's really cool. So your rib cage should be the most flexible, pliable thing on your skeleton. Once again, I totally disagree with Beth on around that point, but I'm not going to say <laughs> Fine, fine. But from a movement standpoint, I mean, think about it this way. If you're low, if you're so compressed, yeah. this yeah. ain't going anywhere. Now you may, you know, create a lot of passive range of motion, right. but that's not going to be supported. And in the long haul, it's going to start causing some issues. Well, and you nail it because for gymnastics to have that chest kind of compressed in so that it does limit the motion of the shoulder is important because you don't want to be sort of hyperextended. That's right. not where and your strength is, but then- most, Yeah, most gymnasts I see start oh, yeah. to move from that lower back. Oh yeah. I, they don't I, have that ability to actually segment through their thoracic spine. Right. And that's a big issue. When I first moved to Boulder, I had a friend who had a daughter who was 11 years old at the time who just got into gymnastics and she was pretty good. And I said, I'm going to warn you in advance when she's 18, she's going to have the exact same posture I do. And seven <laughs> years later, when she was, you know, a nationally ranked gymnast, we looked like we were twins, you know, yeah. totally the same posture. Yeah. When, when you watch, especially female gymnasts walk, I like trying to imitate people's walks. And like you said, you know, everything goes to the lower back when all that's tied up top. Right, right, right. I, I can't imitate their walk. It is so weird. Well, they start rotating from yeah. their lower back because they can't get any rotation up top. And I mean, you have to think about it. All your flexors mm -hmm. kind of work together. So deep neck flexors, rectus abdominis, hip flexors. Think about how much compression they're always trying oh, to yeah. use. Yeah. And runners tend to do the same thing. They'll, t they'll sometimes bear their chin down. Right. Rock and roll. I've seen that some. As opposed to, you know, we have strategies for when, when stuff gets tough. Right. You know what I mean? And over bracing is, is a strategy. There's another component to this that I'm thinking about that I'm in, I want to hear your take on. So, and goes back to powerlifting. So, when you're bench pressing, what most people don't think of is that what makes you instantly stronger is scapular attraction, is getting those shoulder blades back and down and together. Yeah. So, that's called a wedge. A wedge. Say a more. wedge. Yeah. So, wedges work in different ways. When you are actually, when you're doing a bench press, mm -hmm. and you'll see like, like, super competitive power lifters, yeah. they'll get that big back arch, Yep. right? So when you get that big back arch, you're basically creating support from the backside of you. Interesting. That's, yeah. Now in the deadlift wedge, it's a little bit different. You're basically, I usually teach a deadlift as you're using the, the weight like a partner, you have to fall back and counterbalance with it so you can actually feel your feet. So if you go to set up for a deadlift, yeah. If you're 
here and just go pull and push, you see how my legs aren't really loaded. Right. If I fall back and use the weight as a counterbalance, there's my legs. All I have to do is stand up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Very clever. It's all about finding your feet in a deadlift. Well, you know, and deadlifters, it's funny when you talk to people uh, who say, well, I can't go into my gym if I'm wearing no shoes. I go, well, that's so ironic because serious deadlifters, they're either in bare feet or socks or like super flexible, you know, wearing our stuff. So um, they understand that feet are important. And what most people don't get in powerlifting is your feet are important for bench pressing too, which seems. Yeah. You better be pushing through those feet. (laughs) Right. And people. (laughs) That is your, that is your super gas power. Right. That is your gas pedal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And people like don't think of it that way. So, um, so we're in this process. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things that started our conversation was that you do have this understanding of how things both go down to and come back up from your feet. So when did you get, you know, really hip to feet? You know, there is an organization called ICANN, Integrated Kinetic Neurology. I was actually just uh, chatting with the, one of the founders today. Um, he lives in Ireland. His name is Ryan. And they're all about, they're, a big part of their teaching is using hands and feet for problem solving. So if we think about what has the most contact with your environment, it's your hands and your feet. You don't bench press with your shoulders mm. or your chest. You're connected to the bar. You don't deadlift with your hips. You push the ground with your feet. Similarly to walking, you don't walk with your knees and hips. You walk with your feet. So the, the better you can, can actually, what, to use their terms, problem solve and the more lower leg variability and wrist variability um, that you have, the more that the stuff up the chain and the midline specifically can kind of chill out. Hmm. Your proximal joints, shoulders and hips will tend to stiffen if your distal limbs don't know what the heck is going on. So wait, I want to pause there. Give give me an example of that. I want to, so if you're- I'll I'll give you an example. Okay, great. Apart, because I do a lot of virtual assessments now and I can't, I'm so used to getting my hands on people. Right. First thing I look, I just have them get into a half kneeling position. I'm going to pause. So for people who are listening, so um, start by kneeling and then lift one foot, put one foot on the ground in front. So you've got, uh, how would you describe this? If you're describing it to people who aren't watching half kneeling, half kneeling. All right. So yes. one, one knee on the ground, one foot on the ground, 90 yeah, degree yeah, angles yeah. Two little 90 degree angles here. And yeah. then I have them shift forward and just feel pressure in their leg. Okay. And usually I'll not usually, but sometimes I'll see this. So the hip extending out to the side. That right. So it's just this hike, a lot of tension in the midline and the hip because they, they, and the foot will kind of start doing some weird stuff or they'll go to stand up and the foot's all over the place. And it's just showing me they don't have a sense of grounding. Now, I don't know, and no one could know if it's coming from top down or bottom up. So usually right. I attack it from both ends. Most people need more rib cage and midline variability. That's just the way it is. You know what I mean? We all do. You cannot have a ribcage that's too movable or a spine that segments well enough. That's how you transfer force. But if you have a good sense of grounding, this stuff can kind of chill out so you can actually push with your legs and not have to stiffen up. I always tell people, I'm like, guys, you're doing a bodyweight split squat. You're not lifting a car. You know what I mean? Those (laughs) You don't need to hold your breath and you don't need to like tighten up. You're literally standing off the floor. So I want to do two things. One, just highlight what you're talking about is if your foot is not engaged with the ground and is, you know, functioning well, flexible and strong, then everything upstream is going to try to compensate in ways that aren't, it's not designed or top down. If there's stiffness and things aren't moving, that's going to be reflected. You don't have a chance to be grounded. Got yeah. It. And I also want to yeah. highlight that when you're saying grounded, there are some people who are think we're going to be talking about quote grounding, AKA earthing, AKA, well, I won't get into that, but what you're, I don't even know what that means. Oh, really good. Then we're not going to get into that, <laughs> but actually just for the sake of clarifying, when you say your foot is grounded, can you say more about what that means for you? Yeah. 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 So if you think in terms of, of center of mass, 
Yeah. So your rib cage is your center of mass, right? So at this point in time, my rib cage is directly over my pelvis. My so, this is when you're, so now we're, you know, in half kneeling again. And so your body, you've got your hips over, over your knee that's right. on the ground, your shoulders over your hips, your head over your shoulders. Right. Exactly. So if I go to shift forward mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily have that ability to maintain my center of mass, this will happen sometimes. Arching your back. Yep. And so I'll stiffen up here. So when I go to stand up, that'll happen, right? But also if I don't have the ability for compression in the ab wall, I still don't have a sense of grounding. Oh, interesting. The ability to actually feel my entire foot real estate, not just the heel, not just the toe, because if my center of mass goes forward, look what happens to my heel. Right. Heel this up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And look what happens to my knee. Knee is That's a sheer force. Yeah. Right? So when people say lunges hurt my knee, I'm like, mm, I don't think it's a knee issue. It could be. I think it's probably more of a center of mass issue. Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, have you bumped into Ben Patrick, who I had on the podcast a little while ago, who calls himself the knees over toes guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> you will get a kick. You got to check out Ben because let's just say he has some ideas about what it means to have your knees go over your toes and what the value of that is if you do it correctly. And very, very interesting cat. Anyway, I'm just going to leave it at that. And you can- Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, you can check out the podcast where we he and I chatted. You can check out, he's got like a bajillion YouTube videos. Um, you might find it interesting because I would argue that you're not that you're not disagreeing with each other. That because okay. for him, the the whole point of being able to get your knee over your toes when you're doing a lunge is that it requires really having your foot anchored into the ground, right. the ankle flexibility to do that properly. And he just has a bunch of regressions for, you know, if you can't do that all the way, here's how you can get there and what the value is. And I'll give you a hint. There's someone I know who didn't want to give him credit for this whole, it's not his idea, but didn't want to give him credit, even though that's where he heard about this whole idea of doing a lunge with your knee, going wherever your toes. So he just uh-huh. referred to it as a VMO split squat because- I mean, okay. Because when you do it that way, your uh, VMO is your vestus medialis. So it's it's that teardrop muscle on the inside of your knee. When you do properly let your knee go over your toes in a split squat, it really activates that VMO and your glutes in a way that's interesting. And it can only happen if the feet are really, really able to feel and anchor to the ground. You'll get it. I want to hear your feedback after you. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So I want to give people something that they can play with. I mean, we've given a few things, but if people are coming to you or let's say, let's just say for the fun of it, that um, someone just says, how can I explore what you've been doing or play with my body in some way? Don't take that out of context uh, in (laughs) some way that is going to really let me discover something about my feet and my rib cage and my, my uh, thoracic flexibility or whatever it is that you would want them to just learn as a starting point. What would you imagine teaching? If we're going to teach someone a movement, what would you do? Right. I mean, just to be, just to keep it as scalable as possible, because things are different based on assessment, obviously, yeah. like yeah. everybody's body's different. The first thing I do actually is just have people lay supine. So flat on your back in kind of, this is called a hook line position. So your heels are pretty close to your butt palms up towards the ceiling and you want to kind of create not kind of, you do want to create a posterior tilt. And this is where people kind of get into trouble. They think of a posterior tilt as a big brace, like a big ab brace. And when you brace, especially over brace, you can't get air in and then variability is limited. So if it was all you can do is brace, you can't go in the opposite direction. So the tricky part is finding the posterior tilt where you're literally taking your tailbone between your heels. And all I feel is my waistband getting heavy into the floor. So So my belly is very relaxed. relaxed. So again, so so you're lying on your back, um, feet close to your butt or as close as you can comfortably get. And the like pretty you touch yeah look about a hand hand length away and then the posterior tilt is as if you were um you know you're basically taking the back of your pelvis and rotating that back in front of your pelvis forward but like to your point not doing it by cranking on your abs right so a posterior tilt literally looks like this so so yeah it's like tucking your butt underneath you is one way of thinking yeah so it's not here yeah it's literally, I think about my tailbone melting down. You know, oh, you know that was good. Old, you know, those old school shirts that have the scrunch in them? No. The what? <laughs> what the I'm from the South. About? 
<laughs> anyway, it's like it's like a tie where it makes the shirt scrunch up smaller. What are you talking think, about? You're making shit up. <laughs> that's not uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> so I think of those muscles right above my tailbone. It's like a little scrunch. Somebody yeah. out there is going to know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're lying. So okay, whatever. When I think about reaching my tailbone down, I think of those muscles ironing out. I just like the yeah. I like the distinction that you're making is most people, if they think about posterior tilt, they think about it like doing an ab crunch. And what yeah, you're talking yeah. about no, no. is, yeah, yeah, is leaving the abs and just letting that tailbone drop. Yeah. That's interesting. And if you, but this is the tricky part. If these month, if your rib cage is going forward, yeah, this is what we like to call locked and loaded. Try as you might, you are not going to be able to posterior tilt. Right. There's nothing wrong with an anterior tilt. Unless yeah. you just can't get out of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to be, it, that's that whole tension release idea. One side of your pelvis, when engaged, has to be an anterior tilt. One side has to be a posterior tilt. You have to have that continuous tension release. So a good way to start, if you can't, if you can't find it, is just elevate your feet. So I'll take like a little yoga. Easy, right? right? And this is going to help facilitate my posterior tilt. So, I don't even really have to brace anymore. Right. And you want to kind of attack it from the rib cage down. So you would do super quiet, easy breaths here. Like your inhale would be quiet. A loud inhale is not an expansive inhale. It's a it's a secondary respiratory inhale. Got it. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you want to inhale super quiet. And then when you exhale, you want to let the rib cage fully depress, compress. Mm -hmm. Now watch my shoulders. I don't want that to happen. So you don't want your shoulders coming up off. I'm literally just letting the front of me relax. Mm -hmm. Then when I go to inhale again, I have a more productive inhale. And then when I exhale, I have a super productive exhale. So an exhale, a better exhale equals a more productive inhale. So to highlight uh, a couple of things from watching what you're doing, and for anyone who's just listening, I hope you go and check out our website so you can see, see the video of this. If when you elevate your, there's a couple of things. When you elevate your feet, it kind of does some of that posterior pelvic tilt for it's, it's, you. Exactly. Yeah, and what you you know the point you were making before about things starting bottom up and top down about how they interact. That's so if you're, if you do your feet on the ground, that'll let you feel that bottom up version, if you will. And you can kind of play with the, well, you can too, but when you're bringing the ground up to you, true, but it seems though, and this is not, these are not mutually exclusive. It's obviously on a bit of a a spectrum, if you will. But um, what you were just showing was letting that top down part inform the bottom up part. So working on the breathing and the rib cage lets the pelvis do its thing work on the pelvis, you'll start to feel the rib cage thing as well. So that's a really great place to experience. Yeah. And you'll see a lot of people want to compensate because, you know, I, I hear a lot of, especially like group exercise instructors now say, knit and trainers, knit the ribs in, knit the ribs in, blah, blah, blah. And that, that is an overbracing strategy. You, that is going to actually inhibit mobility and movement if you brace down too tight. So if you just let the exhalation do the work, you're golden. And exhalation is your best ab exercise because when you exhale fully, your internal obliques pull your rib cage into internal rotation. So are you suggesting something a little more? I mean, since exhaling, the diaphragm is naturally coming back into this sort of curve spot. Are you, uh, exactly. are you, when you're talking about exhaling fully, adding that little extra something or just letting the diaphragm just do its thing and no extra? Just, yeah. You want to let, I think about letting the breastbone fall down. Mm. So when you go to inhale, you actually have somewhere to go. If you don't exhale fully, see I'm an extension, say I exhale, this is what happens with belly breathing a lot. They'll pull their belly in. Mm. I haven't changed. I haven't moved at all. So when I go to inhale again, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I got nothing. I'm already there. Yeah, your brain wants to do two things. Breathe and don't fall down. (laughs) So, so if you go, if you're already in a state of inhalation and you go to inhale again, you have to pull from somewhere. Usually it's right here. You know? Yeah. So it's so interesting. You're saying this, 
I, I have a friend, I won't mention him by name, who made a lot of money teaching people how to breathe. And a lot of it was belly breathing. And I said to him, you're not doing anything with the chest and the thoracic area about at the very least letting that re- be relaxed enough to open up and yeah, relaxed yeah. enough to go the other direction as well. And I, and I noticed this is years ago. I haven't thought about this in a long time. When I focused on my chest a little more, it allowed my quote belly breathing to be better as well. Thousand percent. The belly should expand. Yeah. But it should not be the only thing. The to only expand. thing. And yeah. when the belly expands only, that tips you right into an anterior tilt. Interesting. Yeah. Which is not great from a stability strategy. No. And again, it's one of those things backing up to our female gymnasts, watching them walk around. I mean, they, they're always, you know, massively anterior tilt, a lot of uh, arch in the lower. I mean, and again, this is just, it's something that ends up developing because it's more effective for what they're doing for their limited careers. Right. And also like most of them have ankle sprain and foot histories Like that's when I'm doing an intake with someone, the first thing I ask, one of the first things is, have you ever sprained your ankle? Because that, because that, if you've sprained your ankle, anytime you have a scar tissue or chronic pain or repetitive injuries that inhibits cortical mapping. So you lose awareness there, create stiffness up the chain. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that is one of the first thing, and I'm just like, no, with the ankle sprains. I mean, I've sprained this one 20, 25 times. I was going to say, it's does it matter? Does it matter how you sprain it? Because you just gave me a flashback back in my days when I was doing stand-up comedy for a living. I was late for a gig. It's a, a club that was in the basement of a restaurant, and I'm running down the stairs, or more accurately, it was two flights of stairs. So I jump down the first flight. I turn around and I go to jump down the second flight, and then I notice that there's a fire sprinkler or sprinkler head that I'm heading straight for. And so I ducked to miss the sprinkler head, but then I caught both of my feet on the bottom stair and sprained both my ankles so much that um, I actually went into shock, which was the first time I did that. That was very entertaining. Um, so I, 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 I barely, I make it onto the stage. And after 30 seconds, the club owner goes, uh, dude, you are white. Let me get you off the stage. <laughs> and and <laughs> carried me off took me to my apartment, threw me in the bed and, and I didn't leave for a week. And happily I, oh, had a good, I had a good supply of lucky charms, which have magic healing properties. <laughs> Thank God. So, so that was uh, bad. Yeah. It creates, they create a lot of issues. Yeah. But, and but multiple sprains, you know, tell me something for sure. It's like, there's some, there's some stuff going on there. I don't know anyone who hasn't gotten an ankle sprain personally, but to your point, you know, there's another thing about humans where, we will heal just enough to be able to breathe and stand and stand up without falling and not get back to optimal functioning unless we pay oh, attention yeah. to it. Yeah, I think I'm not sure if Daniel Lieberman talks about it in exercise, but if you've read his first book, Story of the Human Body, yeah, uh, ankle sprains are like that's a new thing. You know? oh, that's interesting. Our feet don't problem solve like they used to. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't. And that's why like you don't have that environment. So so doing, you know, you have to start easy, but multi-directional, multi-planner right. thing right. is very important. This is the more you, the more variability you have in multiple directions, the better you can move forward. This is something I actually had uh, I get into this argument with people on a somewhat regular basis. Let's not call it an argument. Someone says something where that they that is not true. And I try to correct them. And, um, and so it's a variation of, you know, we didn't evolve to fill in the blank. They go, we didn't evolve to run on concrete. I go, well, first of all, what we evolved on is such a variable and variegated surface that we're constantly using all these muscles, ligaments, and tendons in ways that we're not doing right now. And if you can do that, then you're fine. Like you just said, you're fine on a flat, straight surface. And just because we didn't evolve on a flat, straight surface doesn't mean you can't function on a flat, straight surface. Yeah. You just have to do supplemental things. Yeah. And, Wait, you know, and the other point in this video that he was complaining about, I make a point, my dad, this is six years ago, had always been in big, thick padded shoes and, you know, couldn't really feel. And, my mom does the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's one of those guys that, you know, tripped on something that was really shouldn't have been trippable, fell down, broke his hip and was dead a couple of days later. And people go, oh, you're saying that the shoes made him die. It's like, no, I'm saying the shoes made him vulnerable. Yeah, that is true. I, I made my mom, I was like, cause she was walking around in sneakers at home. Right. A lot of people in the South do that for some yeah. reason. And they're the big old, they're like the big padded, we call them tennis shoes in the South. And I was like, you need to start walking around barefoot. 
I was just like, this is important because her feet just did it because she was starting to shuffle. shuffle. A this is what I said. My dad shuffled. He tripped over something that was a half an inch high because he shuffled right. and walked. Right. Yeah. I have to shout out my mom though. She took, um, I taught a jump rope course, I guess like four weeks ago, and it was all about feet. So we used toe spacers and how to load differently and just different like working loading tolerance. And my mom is 72 and she did 20 skips consecutively. Nice. I was just like, all right, all right. <laughs> but that, I mean, having that ability to move well is important. Yeah. And that is one thing that I did learn with functional range conditioning. They have um, these movement called CARS. CARS stands for controlled articular rotations. This is another movement that people can do quite easily on their own. Basically, you're taking a joint and you're isolating the movement. You're trying to make the biggest circle possible with that mm. joint, keeping the rest of the limb very still. So if I were going to do it with my ankle, I would keep all of this nice and still. I would go through plantar flexion mm -hmm. and then I'll turn the face this way so you can see. Wait, hold, I've got to, I, have to, I have to pause. I, I mean this in the nicest possible way. Oh my God, do you have dancer feet? Oh, <laughs> I do have to answer that was awesome. Anyway, please, please continue. And again, if you're not watching the video, you got to watch. Those are some very amazingly. All I have is feet. So you plantar flex, pull the toes across, drive the heel forward, toes out, and then down. So basically you're going through plantar flexion, inversion, dorsiflexion, dorsiflexion, version yeah. and back into plantar and you'll go in both directions nice now this is the funny thing about doing cars if you haven't gone in these ranges in a long time slash ever your brain will zip oh, yeah. through them yeah no this uh, i was gonna i was just about to make that point yeah i was just gonna make that point you're you have a nice smooth circle that you're making and i know that for most people you know there'll be glitches in the whole thing and the idea is to slow down more so you can that, that control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some people get incredibly frustrated. They're like, why is my, you know, ankle not doing what I'm telling it to? I'm like, you haven't been in that range maybe ever. Right. But the cool thing about cars is it kind of plays with pressure in a different way. So we talked about pressure with it, with air. Yeah. Um, this plays with mechanoreception. So mechanoreceptors are these little pressure sensors in your joint capsule. And if you're really pushing on your in ranges, it kind of sends a signal to your brain like, oh, I can go there. And a lot of times with ankle sprains, it's due to lack of predictability. So you go there and it's just like, uh, and the, the rest of the body freezes up and then it can't be, it can't be pliable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, no, it totally does. The thing that it's got me thinking about is, I mean, a bunch of ideas with it, uh, about neuroplasticity. There's a book called, uh, do you ever read uh, The Brain That Changes Itself? Yes. So I think about that book and I talk about it a lot because when you stop using some part of your body, and I normally think about this about just using it at all, but now it's occurring to be about certain, let's say certain parts of a range of motion, mm -hmm. your brain literally shuts down and changes shapes. Right. About using that, but because yeah. using it is natural, if you start to do it again, it will re uh, differentiate and you'll, you know, you can build that back because that's what normal is. And so I never thought exactly. about just, you know, we develop these little protective things, sprain our ankle. We try to keep ourselves from doing something like that again, which is this negative cycle of turning mm -hmm. your brain off from being able to get that motion back, which is what you would need to do to heal. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Fascinating. Cars are incredible for that. And, you know, FRC functional range conditioning uses a lot of isometrics and isometrics are so great because they're like, you get on that in range and then you apply a little bit of force and right. it just, it almost the pressure and the force lets the brain know, okay. It just wakes up. Have you ever, have you ever done anything with Feldenkrais? I've read a couple of books, but I'm, it's so funny, even being a dancer, I've never, never formally done anything with Feldenkrais. That's Christ. okay. Well, yeah. I only bring it up because- I like a lot of the eye work though. Oh, the eye stuff's really fun. Um, I bring yeah. it up just because it, there's some similar ideas in there with one part being, again, slow motions, but one of the fun parts is, let's say your left side, your left shoulder is the one that's quote frozen. You make movements with the right shoulder really slowly. 
And then when you have that down, you go to the left shoulder and it's like the left one learned from the right one. It learned from the good side. And then, yeah. So in training, we call that carryover training. So I use that a lot with people who are injured. So I think you can get something like 25% like strength gains, carryover training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool work. I had, I was really lucky. There was a guy named Tom Hanna who brought Moshe Feldenkrais to America. And back in 1989, I got to have some sessions with him and yeah, it was great. I had a wacky shoulder from gymnastics things and he's working on the good side. I'm what are you doing that for? And suddenly like I, this massive change of my range of motion. And then he's now try the quote bad side. And it's like, what the hell? I was able to move in ways that I hadn't, I don't, I think, you know, I had probably hadn't done that in years. It was, and it was, and it does this fun thing in your brain when you reawaken one of those little, you know, like dead glitchy parts, it feels so pleasant. It's just this rush of. Well, you can let go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of apprehensive tone around the unknown. You know, I see that a lot with people with lower back discomfort or ankle sprains and, you know, there's just this. I think, that's, I think that's true. Even if you just think about something that you're quote afraid of doing, that's yeah. whatever that, you know, that's what the body does is there's just some sort of contraction for whatever reason to do something seemingly protective when it's probably it's, yeah. the exact opposite. Exactly. Exactly. It's totally a counterproductive protective mechanism. I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was some, um, some gestalt therapist whose line was uh, anxiety is just excitement without the breathing. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you. This has been a total pleasure. Is there anything that you can think of before we tell people how they can find you? Anything that you would want to hear? I'm going to do this. This is going to be really obnoxious and I don't expect that you can do this. Um, If you can, this will be really cool. It's an apocryphal. Oh no, now I'm very nervous and I love a challenge. Be be nervous and breathe. So I am told, I don't know if it's true, that somebody asked Freud as he was like dying, not necessarily on his deathbed, but towards the end of his life, um, if you had to sum up everything you know in one sentence, what would it be? And I'm told that the answer was uh, secrets make you sick. Now, it may not be true that he said that but it's a really great thing to ponder. If you had to sum up what you've put together so far in your life into a sentence, can you do that? Ooh. It's a good one. I always tell my students that take my classes, I'm like, being able to dissociate your shoulder blades from your rib cage is the key to life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait, I, hold on. I got to tell you something. You wouldn't expect any other thing from me, but that is that seems like a very easy feat. No, no, no. That's one of the hardest things. But if you can do that, everything down below is real chill. Yeah. So again, my right shoulder has been out of whack since I was a gymnast. I had my rotator cuff and biceps tenodesis, you know, a few years ago. And my right shoulder blade is not as mobile as my left. And I literally say to people when I have like any body work or whatever, I go, if you can get that moving, my fantasy is that you'll just like crack or pop or move something. And then my entire life will change. I've said this so many times to people. So I'm all on board with that one. I think, I think that nails it. <laughs> oh boy. This, this is how we'll change the world. Is exactly just- one shoulder blade at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're onto it. So um, dude, again, this has been a real, real pleasure. Um, if people want to find out so more fun. about what you're up to, how can they do that? My Instagram is my entire life. <laughs> I'm so it's sorry all my that. It's my work and my three small French bulldogs. And that my handle is Beth Lewis Fit, F-I-T. So, so well, B-E-T-H-L-E-W-I-S-F-I-T. F-I-T. Yep. Mm-hmm. And all my, I, I do teach six-week courses online. So I do one six-week course every eight weeks. So it's, and they're very themed. So coming up, I'm doing a pull-up course and an upper body reaching like a hypertrophy course. And then also actually an agility cardio course. Ooh. I know. <laughs> I'm pretty pumped for it, actually. I'm fun. Well, yeah. I hope people go and check that out. Um, once again, it's been a total treat. So let me do the sign-off part other than saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Please go check out what Beth is up to. And again, I've mentioned it a couple of times. Go check out www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes and all the different ways you can engage with this. If you have any questions or recommendations, people you think you know we should have a conversation with or something I'm, I'm, I should rant about because I do those things too, uh, drop me an email. 
move at jointhemovementmovement.com. Again, as I said, this is all about you spreading the word about the value and benefits and fun of natural movement. So do that if you want to be part of the tribe. As I said, please subscribe, but most importantly, make it simple. Just go out, have fun, and live life feet first.